The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 3 America's Central Objective The central issue for America is how to construct a Europe that is based on the Franco-German connection, a Europe that is viable, that remains linked to the United States, and that widens the scope of the cooperative democratic international system on which the effective exercise of American global primacy so much depends. Hence, it is not a matter of making a choice between France and Germany. Without either France or Germany, there will be no Europe. Three broad conclusions emerge from the foregoing discussion. 1. American engagement in the cause of European unification is needed to compensate for the internal crisis of morale and purpose that has been sapping European vitality, to overcome the widespread European suspicion that ultimately America does not favor genuine European unity, and to infuse into the European undertaking the needed dose of democratic fever. That requires a clear-cut American commitment to the eventual acceptance of Europe as America's global partner. 2. In the short run, tactical opposition to French policy and support for German leadership is justified. In the longer run, European unity will have to involve a more distinctive European political and military identity if a genuine Europe is actually to become reality. That requires some progressive accommodation to the French view regarding the distribution of power within transatlantic institutions. 3. Neither France nor Germany is sufficiently strong to construct Europe on its own or to resolve with Russia the ambiguities inherent in the definition of Europe's geographic scope. That requires energetic, focused, and determined American involvement, particularly with the Germans, in defining Europe's scope and hence also in coping with such sensitive, especially to Russia, issues as the eventual status within the European system of the Baltic Republics and Ukraine. Just one glance at the map of the vast Eurasian landmass underlines the geopolitical significance to America of the European bridgehead, as well as its geographic modesty. The preservation of that bridgehead and its expansion as the springboard for democracy are directly relevant to America's security. The existing gap between America's global concern for stability and for the related dissemination of democracy and Europe's seeming indifference to these issues, despite France's self-proclaimed status as a global power, needs to be closed, and it can only be narrowed if Europe increasingly assumes a more confederated character. Europe cannot become a single nation-state because of the tenacity of its diverse national traditions. But it can become an entity that, through common political institutions, cumulatively reflects shared democratic values, identifies its own interests with their universalization, and exercises a magnetic attraction on its co-inhabitants of the Eurasian space. Left to themselves, the Europeans run the risk of becoming absorbed by their internal social concerns. Europe's economic recovery has obscured the longer-run costs of its seeming success these costs are damaging economically as well as politically. The crisis of political legitimacy and economic vitality that Western Europe increasingly confronts, but is unable to overcome, is deeply rooted in the pervasive expansion of the state-sponsored social structure that favors paternalism, protectionism, and parochialism. 
The result is a cultural condition that combines escapist hedonism with spiritual emptiness, a condition that can be exploited by nationalist extremists or dogmatic ideologues. This condition, if it becomes rampant, could prove deadly to democracy and the idea of Europe. The two, in fact, are linked for the new problems of Europe, be they immigration or economic technological competitiveness with America or Asia, not to speak of the need for a politically stable reform of existing socio-economic structures, can only be dealt with effectively in an increasingly continental context. A Europe that is larger than the sum of its parts, that is, a Europe that sees a global role for itself in the promotion of democracy and in the wider proselytization of basic human values, is more likely to be a Europe that is firmly uncongenial to political extremism, narrow nationalism, or social hedonism. One need neither evoke the old fears of a separate German-Russian accommodation, nor exaggerate the consequences of French tactical flirtation with Moscow to entertain concern for the geopolitical stability of Europe, and for America's place in it, resulting from a failure of Europe's still ongoing effort to unite. Any such failure would in fact probably entail some renewed and rather traditional European maneuvers. It would certainly generate opportunities for either Russia or German geopolitical self-assertion, though if Europe's modern history contains any lesson, neither would be likely to gain an enduring success in that regard. However, at the very least, Germany would probably become more assertive and explicit in the definition of its national interests. Currently, Germany's interests are congruent with, and even sublimated within, those of the EU and of NATO. Even the spokesmen for the leftist alliance, 90 Greens, have advocated the expansion of both NATO and the EU. But if the unification and enlargement of Europe should stall, there is some reason to assume that a more nationalist definition of Germany's concept of the European order would then surface, to the potential detriment of European stability. Wolfgang Schaubel, the leader of the Christian Democrats in the Bundestag, and a possible successor to Chancellor Kohl, expressed that mindset when he stated that Germany is no longer, quote, the Western bulwark against the East. We have become the center of Europe, unquote. Pointedly adding that in, quote, the long periods during the Middle Ages, Germany was involved in creating order in Europe, unquote. In this vision, Mittel Europa, instead of being a European region in which Germany economically preponderates, would become an area of overt German political primacy as well as the basis toward a more unilateral German policy vis-à-vis -vis the East and the West. Europe would then cease to be the Eurasian bridgehead for American power and the potential springboard for the democratic global system's expansion into Eurasia. This is why unambiguous and tangible American support for Europe's unification must be sustained. Although both during Europe's economic recovery and within the Transatlantic Security Alliance, America has frequently proclaimed its support for European unification and supported transnational cooperation in Europe, it has also acted as if it preferred to deal on troubling economic and political issues with individual European states and not the European Union as such. Occasional American insistence on a voice within the European decision-making process has tended to reinforce European suspicions that America favors cooperation among the Europeans when they follow the American lead, but not when they formulate Europe's policies. 
This is the wrong message to convey. American commitment to Europe's unity, reiterated forcefully in the Joint American-European Madrid Declaration of December 1995, will continue to ring hollow until America is ready not only to declare unambiguously that it is prepared to accept the consequences of Europe becoming truly Europe, but to act accordingly. For Europe, the ultimate consequence would entail a true partnership with America rather than the status of a favored but still junior ally. And a true partnership does not mean sharing in decisions as well as responsibilities. American support for that cause would help to invigorate the transatlantic dialogue and would stimulate among the Europeans a more serious concentration on the role that a truly significant Europe might play in the world. It is conceivable that at some point, a truly united and powerful European Union could become a global political rival to the United States. It could certainly become a difficult economic technological competitor, while its geopolitical interests in the Middle East and elsewhere could significantly diverge from those of America. But, in fact, such a powerful and politically single-minded Europe is not likely in the foreseeable future. Unlike the conditions prevailing in America at the time of the formation of the United States, there are deep historical roots to the resilience of the European nation-states, and the passion for a transnational Europe has clearly waned. The real alternatives for the next decade or two are either an expanding and unifying Europe, pursuing, though hesitantly and spasmodically, the goal of continental unity, a stalemated Europe not moving much beyond its current state of integration and geographic scope, with Central Europe remaining a geopolitical no-man's land, or, as a likely sequel to the stalemate, a progressively fragmenting Europe, resuming its old power rivalries. In a stalemated Europe, it is almost inevitable that Germany's self-identification with Europe will wane, prompting a more nationalist definition of the German state interest. For America, the first option is clearly the best, but it is an option that requires energizing American support if it is to come to pass. At this stage of Europe's hesitant construction, America need not get directly involved in intricate debates regarding such issues as whether the EU should make its foreign policy decisions by majority vote, a position favored especially by the Germans, whether the European Parliament should assume decisive legislative powers and the European Commission in Brussels should become, in effect, the European Executive, whether the timetable for implementing the agreement on European Economic and Monetary Union should be relaxed, or finally, whether Europe should be a broad confederation or a multi-layered entity with a federated inner core and a somewhat looser outer rim. These are matters for the Europeans to thrash out among themselves, and it is more than likely that progress on all these issues will be uneven, punctuated by pauses, and eventually pushed forward only by complex compromises. Nonetheless, it is reasonable to assume that the economic and monetary union will come into being by the year 2000, perhaps initially among 6 to 10 of the EU's current 15 members. This will accelerate Europe's economic integration beyond the monetary dimension, further encouraging its political integration. Thus, by fits and starts, and with an inner more integrated core, as well as a looser outer layer, a single Europe will increasingly become an important political player on the Eurasian chessboard. In any case, America should not convey the impression that it prefers a vaguer, 
even if broader, European association. But it should reiterate, through words and deeds, its willingness to deal eventually with the EU as America's global political and security partner, and not just as a regional common market made up of states allied with the United States through NATO. To make that commitment more credible, and thus go beyond the rhetoric of partnership, joint planning with the EU regarding new bilateral transatlantic decision-making mechanisms could be proposed and initiated. The same principle applies to NATO as such. Its preservation is vital to the transatlantic connection. On this issue, there is overwhelming American-European consensus. Without NATO, Europe not only would become vulnerable, but almost immediately would become politically fragmented as well. NATO ensures European security and provides a stable framework for the pursuit of European unity. That is what makes NATO historically so vital to Europe. However, as Europe gradually and hesitantly unifies, the internal structure and process of NATO will have to adjust. On this issue, the French have a point. One cannot someday have a truly united Europe and yet have an alliance that remains integrated on the basis of one superpower plus 15 dependent powers. Once Europe begins to assume a genuine political identity of its own, with the EU increasingly taking on some of the functions of a supranational government, NATO will have to be altered on the basis of a 1 plus 1 US plus Europe formula. This will not happen overnight and all at once. Progress in that direction, to repeat, will be hesitant. But such progress will have to be reflected in the existing alliance arrangements. Lest the absence of such adjustments itself should become an obstacle to further progress. A significant step in that direction was the 1996 decision of the alliance to make room for the combined joint task forces, thereby envisaging the possibility of some purely European military initiatives based on the alliance's logistics as well as on command, control, communications, and intelligence. Greater U.S. willingness to accommodate French demands for an increased role for the Western European Union within NATO especially in regard to command and decision-making, would also betoken more genuine American support for European unity and should help to narrow somewhat the gap between America and France regarding Europe's eventual self-definition. In the longer run, it is possible that the WEU will embrace some EU member states that, for varying geopolitical or historical reasons, may choose not to seek NATO membership. That could involve Finland or Sweden, or perhaps even Austria, all of which have already acquired observer status within the Western European Union. Other states may also seek a Western European connection as a preliminary to eventual NATO membership. The Western European Union might also choose, at some point, to emulate NATO's Partnership for Peace program with regard to would-be members of the EU. All of that would help to spin a wider web of security cooperation in Europe, beyond the formal scope of the transatlantic alliance. In the meantime, until a larger and more united Europe emerges, and that, even under the best of conditions, will not be soon, the United States will have to work closely with both France and Germany in order to help such a more united and larger Europe emerge. Thus, regarding France, the central policy dilemma for America will continue 
to be how to envelge France into closer Atlantic political and military integration without compromising the American-German connection and regarding Germany, how to exploit U.S. reliance on German leadership in the Atlanticist Europe without prompting concern in France and Britain as well as in other European countries. More demonstrable American flexibility on the future shape of the alliance would be helpful in eventually mobilizing greater French support for the alliance's eastward expansion. In the long run, a NATO zone of integrated military security on both sides of Germany would more firmly anchor Germany within a multilateral framework, and that should be a matter of consequence for France. Moreover, the expansion of the alliance would increase the probability that the Weimar Triangle of Germany, France, and Poland could become a suitable means for somewhat balancing German leadership in Europe. Although Poland relies on German support for gaining entrance into the alliance and resents current French hesitations regarding such expansion, once it is inside the alliance, a shared Franco-Polish geopolitical perspective is more likely to emerge. In any case, Washington should not lose sight of the fact that France is only a short-term adversary on matters pertaining to the identity of Europe or to the inner workings of NATO. More important, it should bear in mind the fact that France is an essential partner in the important task of permanently locking a democratic Germany into Europe. That is the historic role of the Franco-German relationship, and the expansion of both the EU and NATO eastward should enhance the importance of that relationship as Europe's inner core. Finally, France is not strong enough either to obstruct America on the geostrategic fundamentals of America's European policy or to become by itself a leader of Europe as such. Hence, its peculiarities and even its tantrums can be tolerated. It is also germane to note that France does play a constructive role in North Africa and in the Francophone African countries. It is the essential partner for Morocco and Tunisia while also exercising a stabilizing role in Algeria. There is a good domestic reason for such French involvement. Some five million Muslims now reside in France. France thus has a vital stake in the stability and orderly development of North Africa. But that interest is of wider benefit to Europe's security. Without the French sense of mission, Europe's southern flank would be much more unstable and threatening. All of Southern Europe is becoming increasingly concerned with the social-political threat posed by instability along the Mediterranean's southern littoral. France's intense concern for what transpires across the Mediterranean is thus quite pertinent to NATO's security concerns, and that consideration should be taken into account when America occasionally has to cope with France's exaggerated claims of special leadership status. Germany is another matter. Germany's dominant role cannot be denied, but caution must be exercised regarding any public endorsements of the German leadership role in Europe. That leadership may be expedient to some European states, like those in Central Europe that appreciate the German initiative on behalf of Europe's eastward expansion, and it may be tolerable to the Western Europeans as long as it is subsumed under America's primacy. But in the long run, Europe's construction cannot be based on it. Too many memories still linger. Too many fears are likely to surface. A Europe constructed and led by Berlin is simply not feasible. That is why Germany needs France, why Europe needs the Franco-German connection, and why America cannot choose between Germany and France.
The essential point regarding NATO expansion is that it is a process integrally connected with Europe's own expansion. If the European Union is to become a geographically larger community, with a more integrated Franco-German leading core and less integrated outer layers, and if such a Europe is to base its security on a continued alliance with America, then it follows that its geopolitically most exposed sector, Central Europe, cannot be demonstratively excluded from partaking in the sense of security that the rest of Europe enjoys through the transatlantic alliance. On this, America and Germany agree. For them, the impulse for the enlargement is political, historical, and constructive. It is not driven by animosity toward Russia, nor by fear of Russia, nor by the desire to isolate Russia. Hence, America must work particularly close with Germany in promoting the eastward expansion of Europe. American-German cooperation and joint leadership regarding this issue are essential. Expansion will happen if the United States and Germany jointly encourage the other NATO allies to endorse the step and either negotiate effectively some accommodation with Russia, if it is willing to compromise, see Chapter 4, or act assertively in the correct conviction that the task of constructing Europe cannot be subordinated to Moscow's objections. Combined American-German pressure will be especially needed to obtain the required unanimous agreement of all NATO members, but no NATO member will be able to deny it if America and Germany jointly press for it. Ultimately at stake in this effort is America's long-range role in Europe. A new Europe is still taking shape and if that new Europe is to remain geopolitically a part of the Euro-Atlantic space, the expansion of NATO is essential. Indeed, a comprehensive U.S. policy for Eurasia as a whole will not be possible if the effort to widen NATO, having been launched by the United States, stalls and falters. That failure would discredit American leadership. It would shatter the concept of an expanding Europe. It would demoralize the Central Europeans, and it could reignite currently dormant or dying Russian geopolitical aspirations in Central Europe. For the West, it would be a self-inflicted wound that would mortally damage the prospects for a truly European pillar in any eventual Eurasian security architecture, and for America it would thus be not only a regional defeat, but a global defeat as well. The bottom line guiding the progressive expansion of Europe has to be the proposition that no power outside of the existing transatlantic system has the right to veto the participation of any qualified European state in the European system, and hence, also, in its transatlantic security system, and that no qualified European state should be excluded a priori from eventual membership in either the EU or NATO especially the highly vulnerable and increasingly qualified Baltic states are entitled to know that eventually they can also become full-fledged members in both organizations, and that in the meantime their sovereignty cannot be threatened without engaging the interests of an expanding Europe and its U.S. partner. In essence, the West, especially America and its Western European allies, must provide an answer to the question eloquently posed by Vaclav Havel in Aachen on May 15, 1996. I know that neither the European Union nor the North Atlantic Alliance can open its doors overnight to all those who aspire to join them. What both most assuredly can do, and what they should do before it is too late, 
is to give the whole of Europe, seen as a sphere of all common values, the clear assurance that they are not closed clubs. They should formulate a clear and detailed policy of gradual enlargement that not only contains a timetable, but also explains the logic of that timetable.